Welcome to Zero Trust 30. I'm your host, George Wilkes, and this is the show that helps you make sense of the cybersecurity sensation that is Zero Trust. Today, we're here to talk about critical infrastructure and the role that Zero Trust can play in helping secure such infrastructure. And it's a bit of a somber day. It is February 24th, and it's a bit timely that we're going through this topic today, given that uh, we have incursions happening in, in the Ukraine and, and they've been hit with cyber attacks that are you know, basically going hand in hand with uh, physical warfare efforts. And so just wanted to take note of that today and, and take a minute to recognize everybody that's in those situations in Ukraine looking to get out and obviously our, our prayers and thoughts and positive vibes are going over to them and hoping everybody can get out and be safe. Uh, on that note, I am gonna bring in today our two guests. I've got Michael Friedrich, who's the field chief technology officer for the AppGate Federal Division. Uh, Michael has been on this podcast before. He oversees federal technology needs and strategy and innovation, helping them with their zero trust roadmaps and strategies. Uh, we also have Jim Anthony, who's the SVP of sales engineering. And we had Jim on with Michael not too long ago to talk about the zero trust maturity stages of crawl, walk, and run as it relates to uh, cloud. So Jim has uh, tons of experience involving design, implementation of zero trust uh, architectures with some of the largest and, and biggest uh, complex organizations in the world. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have the both of them here. So Jim and Michael, please say hellos to the audience here. Greetings. Greetings to everyone. Hello, everybody. And thanks for having us on. Thanks, George. Absolutely. So before we get into the meat of today's topic, um, we do like to just ask a very quick fun little question here uh we call we play a game called what's bugging you so you guys have done this before let's do it again uh michael let's start with you what, what's what's bugging you today and I, I feel like that's just such an obvious question given the circumstances <laughs> but go for it you know i'm gonna go a little bit funny off topic the do baseball it. lockout okay i'm a big baseball fan how do you not just be sad that these millionaires and billionaires can't get worked out so we can enjoy a good baseball game uh, you know, a guy who was you know there and watched the Mets championship happen. You know, come on, I mean, need need some baseball. But you know, in an IT world, just listening to companies and agencies, especially agencies, talk about you know zero trust, zero trust, and then you you say, "Where's the money?" They they look at you like, uh, "What'd you say?" So I, I guess that kind of bugs me. Is you know, it, you know, talk without budget is a, is a problem. So I kind of look at Capitol Hill in my world. You know, as Jim would look at the CFO in his world and say, you know, guys, time to find the money if you're serious. That's right. What about you, Jim? What's bugging you today? Well, what's bugging me is I think that the last time we were on the podcast together, uh, the same thing was bugging Michael. So isn't that true? Weren't, weren't you being bugged by the lockout the last time we were talking? I don't <laughs> think so. The lockout hadn't happened yet. I'm just kidding. Maybe that was another conversation we had. <laughs> uh, you know what's bugging me? Not enough love to go around. There you go. This world is uh, stressed out, and uh, Mother Nature's stressed out. I'm sitting here in San Diego with a jacket on because it's cold outside. It's cold everywhere. There's war going on. Uh, people are trying to defend themselves and, and you know be successful at what they do, and they get these outside influences, and uh, they're disruptive, and uh, that's what's bugging me. Wait a minute. Are we supposed to have pity because it's cold in San Diego, Jim? That just, that's just what got me started. For that. <laughs> now, now that is what we talked about last time on the podcast was the envy of, of, of Jim's uh, climate. Well, envy no more. It's, uh, it's, it's 60 degrees out there. It's very cold. <laughs> 60 it start, degrees? It might start snowing any minute now. 
I've 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 got I've got both my kids home because Texas doesn't know how to deal with an ice storm. They're upstairs, and I told the wife I'm recording a podcast. Please keep them quiet. So I, I have zero pity for your sixty degree weather. Well, George, the question on the table then becomes: Is your critical infrastructure staying up and running in Texas? Uh, to date, yes, it is. In comparison to last year, we 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 are. But I am also lucky to be uh, on the same grid as a as a hospital and a fire department. So I am. In a little bubble. There you go. Protect yeah. the bubble. I like it. There you go. But, but fair point. So uh, obviously here to talk about critical infrastructure. You know, I recently read an article that was in Dark Reading that stated 83% of critical infrastructure organizations suffered breaches in 2021. I mean, that's a eye-opening statistic and relatively alarming if you think about it. Um, you know, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at what is considered critical infrastructure, try to put a definition of it highlight some example breaches, discuss the unique challenges surrounding organizations and agencies that that manage and, and control critical infrastructure, and then explore how this is not just a public sector problem, but then also a private sector issue and how zero trust can be uh, applied to help prevent catastrophic outcomes because of both cyber, you know, basically cyber warfare um, and kind of look at the different comparisons between your typical breaches of organizations versus the motives and desire for targeting critical infrastructure um, and how they are, are, are somewhat different. So let's just jump into the meat of the matter here, right? What is critical infrastructure? According to CISA, there are 16 infrastructure sectors that span both public and private, including chemical commercial facilities, communications, critical manufacturing, dams, defense, uh, industrial base, emergency energy, financial, food and agriculture, government facilities, healthcare, IT, nuclear, transportation, and water. So it is a, a pretty large gamut there, right, of, of, of the coverage. So, um, Jim, I'm going to kick this off with you. Michael, obviously jump in. What are some of the defining characteristics of these industries that grant them the label of being considered critical? Well, George, I think that's an interesting thing to think about because I think the, the answer to that question varies uh, depending on sort of who you are and where you are and where you sure. live in the world. Um, to me, what critical infrastructure is, is really something that you, when, when you want to go and take advantage of it, use it, uh, consume it, it's there for you. It's something that you need in everyday life, whether it's food or, you know, um, hospital access or electricity or fresh water coming out of the tap. All of those things fit into that bucket of critical infrastructure. But obviously, all of those things don't exist in a readily available format in some places in the world. And so I think it varies depending on kind of where you are. And, and so living in the country that we live in, I think we, you know, we like to think of ourselves as advanced and, you know, whatnot. But I think that lends, when it comes to having a critical infrastructure conversation, what, what happens out of that is that we consider more and more things critical infrastructure, yeah. uh, like the internet, communications across the internet, and, and the way that we can actually be productive and work from home with an internet connection without having to go to a central place and jump onto the internet. Um, and that might be a silly example, but but getting back to some of the super critical things, you know, why why is it that a dam is a critical infrastructure? Well, you know, dams do a couple of things, not the least of which is produce electricity and hold back water. And if you were to compromise either of those aspects of a dam by hacking into it and lowering the flood control plane, uh, you might, you know, generate too much electric electricity and overload circuits. 
You might flood towns that, that are downstream from the dam. Uh, you might cause issues with the dam itself because too much water is coming through it. There's all kinds of things that could go wrong with it. Um, but anyway, that's kind of the way I think of critical in infrastructure. And sometimes, you know, you might scratch your head and say, well, does that really apply to critical? Does JBS and their breach really apply to critical infrastructure? Well, yeah, it's it's a massive part of the food chain. Uh, through one one method or another, they've consolidated their industry into a relatively small number of providers. And if those providers end up being shut down or going out of business because of a hack, you've got a major major disruption to people being fed on a routine and regular basis. So that's kind of the way I look at it. Yeah, I mean, and I think it, it even goes even you know more basic, Jim. You think about it this way. You and I had this conversation about other topics recently where even things, you know, take it the financial realm, but take financial realm, turn right, the credit card processing networks, right? There's, there's but a, a very small amount of them in this entire country and even across the globe, it, it, you know, it's not a huge amount of them. And, you know, if take, you know, the events that you referenced at the beginning of this conversation, George, right? The financial systems are being pressed. You're watching government websites go down, banking system sites go down across, you know, Europe and Ukraine you know, the threats against the United States. Well, if you want to cause mass panic, it, you don't just go after the banks, right? Critical infrastructure could be credit card. Can you imagine this country if you can't get money out of the bank or you can't go and buy your groceries because your credit card's not working or get gas in your car or any number of things? I and mean, you could bring this bring this country to a screeching halt in a very big hurry just by attacking that one sector. Go after the ATM networks, go after the credit card networks. Wow. I mean, what happens, right? I mean, it, it, it's... And they've shown that they, they're vulnerable to this, right? Because so many of these systems sit on, on relatively legacy networks and technologies that aren't protected from a management infrastructure well. And, and you know, they don't go through the rigorous testing they should, right? Like they test the banks now after the financial crash to make sure they have enough money. But do they really test their networks well? You know, that, that's to be seen, right? You, you see hack after hack that goes after these, even misconfigured servers that you know, some of the biggest credit card reporting agencies in the world, one misconfigured server, how many people's information was, was spilled onto the, you know, the dark web. So, I mean, it's critical infrastructure can take any number of, of forms, right? I mean, imagine if this was the FAA, right? I'll use the government, right? Somebody gets into the ground radar system, right? All of a sudden you can crash planes. I mean, it's just, you know, it's it's scary to think about all the things that are critical infrastructure. It can be as silly as avocados from Mexico, as Jim and I were talking about, right? And right. panic in that industry and yeah. in, in Southern California and other places, right? It it could be as massive as planes and credit cards and gas. I mean, it's it, it could you could do a lot of damage in a hurry with basic things. Yeah, I mean, the common thread there is human disruption, right? And it it, it turns a risk management exercise entirely on its head, where typically it's how is this breach or an attack on our company going to impact our company into how is a breach going to impact the world in which we serve, you know, whether it's a pipeline, whether it's a credit card and, and processing and things. Of this. I was having a conversation actually just before we jumped on here with my wife and to your point, Michael, around the Ukrainian banks that were obviously taken offline and the level of disruption there. I mean, she's talking to friends and family who are, you know, thinking they're going to go to the banks today and start pulling out mass amounts of, you know, so there's, there's the direct impacts. And there's even that indirect impact of just like that fear that it can instill upon people and, and cause you to take, um, 
take action on. So anyways, let's, let's go to the next question here. I think, um, you know, are there any, I mean, you talked about the avocados, you talked about JBS, obviously the big one, right. That has been, uh, as of late colonial pipeline. Um, are there any that stand out to you? Do you, the two of you guys in terms of recent attacks on critical infrastructure that are noteworthy? The water infrastructure in water, in water yeah. stands out, you know, I mean, Again, it's another something people don't think about. They don't test those kind of systems often. But, you know, Jim brought this up earlier with dams, right? You poison the water down there and how many people can't drink, right? Right. I mean, you know, a low-lying area, they have to do what they have to do to treat water. You could flood it. You could, you know, slowly poison people. It's just, you know, it, it is. These systems are so critical to human life, to human sustainment. That that one sticks out to me. But I, I think. There are others when you when when you think about you know what's going on. Let's use you know just an example today, right? The Chernobyl exclusion zone that you know that was noted as being taken over and the incursion going on. I mean that is a piece of critical infrastructure, even though it's not being used currently. The threat to humanity is, is huge if it is not cared for properly. So I mean these things can th those things all stand out. So that's something from today, something recently. I mean Jim, you know what what do you think? Are you seeing similar things? Yeah, so, you know, I mentioned JBS and the food supply, um, and not to harp on it, but I, I grew up around the meatpacking industry, and uh, my dad was in the industry forever, and it's it's alarming for, for a really big reason. A lot of people will go to the grocery store, and they'll look at all the, you know, the food that's available, the different brands that are there, and they must think, yeah, hey, this is, there's no problem here. Uh, I, I can buy hot dogs from this vendor and that vendor and this other vendor. And if I don't want hot dogs, I can get some other kind of meat. I can do this. I, can, I got all kinds of options. But the reality of it is, is they're just brands. They're just stickers on a package. Most likely, those packages and those brands are all owned by one massive company. And, and the JBS breach emphasizes that unknown world of commerce that, that most citizens don't really understand. Uh, a silly, another silly example of this is there's a company in Wisconsin that produces about 80% of the cream cheese in the, uh, in the country. They got hacked back in uh, September or October. Uh, guess what? I still can't find cream cheese from that company uh, on the shelves here in California. It's very difficult to find it still. Uh, they still haven't gotten over it. They're still not back up into production the way that they should be. Uh, they got they got hit by a ransomware virus and it shut down their operations for a number of a number of days. I think about a week. Shut it down. Well, how about hospital uh, systems? Yeah, I mean that's another one, right? They're connected together. Most of them use one patient care system yep. uh, that's, by the way, remotely connected to, centrally located in in a northern state. Um, you know, I've seen sixty minute specials on it and and things like that, but. Imagine if that gets broken into and, and all the patient care and the patient records that are there that the doctors and nurses are relying on to look backwards in time to say, what were you diagnosed with? What were you prescribed? Have you been taking them? What's your regimen? What's your routine? What if all that goes away and everything has to start from scratch and we basically have to go manual? That's what we're talking about. That's yeah. why it's critical infrastructure. Well, I mean, there's a great example. It's related to healthcare, but so many companies in healthcare, you know, obviously the Electronic medical records companies is, is kind of what you're referring to, but there's also the payroll side that affects the hospitals, right? I mean, one of the biggest ones that just went public recently is, is Kronos, right? They're the second largest payroll company in the United States. I mean, heck, my wife works for a medical practice that uses Kronos. They, they had to manually do payroll for two months. 
because they couldn't, employees couldn't log in, but it was also tied to their ability to log into their EMR system because they had created a single sign-on that logged in through everything. Well, guess what? They couldn't log in. They had to, they had to, their IT had to manually back into everything to find a way to get access to the medical records you were talking about. I mean, it was, it was a disaster. And so, you know, you don't think these systems are interconnected, but they are. And companies are consolidating single sign-ons and integrated records and payroll. And they're doing the right things that they think automate their business. But what it's doing is creating all these different dependencies on each other, whether it's an agency or the government or whoever, right? And that's why that list from CISA is so big. It's, yeah. it, it, you might as well just throw the entire world in the bucket and say everything's critical. So, Michael, I mean, you know, given, given that you're so close to the federal government, um, obviously, since last year with the executive order, there's been a lot of rhetoric, a lot of new policy, a lot of, you know, positive movement from the federal government as it relates to cybersecurity. Um, what are you seeing specific around critical infrastructure? And I think there was something related to uh, the water plants recently, right? That was either getting pushed through or did get pushed through. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of looking at what is it, right? And that was an example. I think it's an example I talked about recently in some venues is, you know, you have agencies like USGS that look at water tables and they have they have sensors all over the world in the ocean, right? They're looking for massive tidal waves and they're looking for water levels and all these different things that could affect it, even like earthquake grids out for like where Jim is, right? And so they're looking at all these kinds of sensor grids and they're saying, well, this is all critical, but they're also looking at even the gasoline pipelines, right? Outside of Colonial, right? What's coming down from Canada. They're looking at, you know, even the snowfall up in Northern California, because that affects what's going on in the drought conditions, which affects the fire service, right? All of those things are now rolling together into this hodgepodge. And so we are seeing policy start to try to address these systems, whether it's the guy in the field that is sending information back that won't cause a panic because he says, hey, the place is on fire, get everybody out. They don't want people running in a panic. They want to manage that, right? Or whether it's weather systems that are being tracked or whether it's somebody that drops a dirty bomb, right? There, you get like FEMA's out there talking about how do they manage disconnected operations if somebody were to do an Oklahoma City again, right? How do they have encrypted, protected communications because they don't trust the VPNs and a lot of different issues, right? So they're, they're all trying to figure out how to extend zero trust into these, these critical pieces of communication and infrastructure and deploy on demand. And it's the policies are trying to address it. Um, what's got to be married with it now, as I said earlier, and kind of what's bugging me is the budget's got to come along to match up with the with these sure. great lofty goals. But these agencies also have to learn to fail, and, and I mean that in the best way, right? Failure is okay if it's internal because you're testing, you're learning, because zero trust never ends. It's that journey, right? And that's my message to a lot of these agencies is. You need to constantly be pen testing yourself and accepting that failure is okay on those because that's how your zero trust is going to get better. So that's where I see a lot of that movement is they're starting to ask the right questions. They're starting to try to figure out their strategies and they're starting to accept that this isn't a, a drop it in and forget about it. It's not an edge router, right? This is something that's going to constantly evolve and they're starting to make exciting changes. They're looking at automation, DevSecOps and understanding their ecosystems, right? So yeah. a long journey to go in the federal government. It's a lot harder than than most enterprises because it touches and interconnects to so much, but it's exciting to see them start. 
So let's let's talk about some of the unique challenges related to organizations that are um, overseeing critical infrastructure. You know, I've got to imagine that by nature they have a heightened sense of risk management, anyways, for both the cyber and the physical security of whatever it is they're in charge of securing. Um, Jim, what do you see as some of those unique challenges specific to cyber that they're facing? Well, I think there's a there's an interesting uh, confluence of it's it's obviously known as critical infrastructure, and therefore mm-hmm. systems are in place that manage and operate it and allow access to it. Uh, but also because it's critical, it's very difficult to make changes to those systems. Uh, and then sort of the if it ain't broke, don't fix it concept comes into play. Uh, you know, we haven't been hacked yet. We haven't been breached yet. It's still doing its thing. We've made the investment. It seems to be working. And, and you know, my, my point is it works until it doesn't. And then when it doesn't, you're left holding the bag. Um, but but I, that's what I'm seeing, right, is there's a lot of complacency within those organizations. And to Michael's point, I think a lot of government regulation and I hate to say the, the fear and uncertainty and doubt related to examples that we've already mentioned, uh, that's starting to creep into the decision-making process. Um, there's a lot of research being done now by those organizations. We see them crawling around our website all the time uh, looking into, you know, what what does it mean to be zero trust oriented? Sure. Uh, what's this journey look like? How do I get started with it? And how does this company help me get there? And so it's it's uh, it's critical to be able to respond to these queries and uh, help these people understand what's different about uh, our perspective on zero trust, you know, and and what what's different about zero trust in general. Let's let we got to educate not only for our own purposes but for the purposes of the market anyway, and, and help these companies be better at what they're doing. Well, I think there's an interesting point there, right, is um, as you're looking at zero trust, it's new, right? It's got to be in the edge. It's got to be for the cloud. It doesn't apply to my legacy infrastructure. And I think, you know, I don't know, Michael, if you want to shoot a complete hole in that, let's let's do that here. I think that's what you see a lot. Legacy architectures, legacy infrastructure, I don't want to touch it. It's got a very, very critical role that it plays. The challenge is then how do I modernize the security for it? Do you want to take that, Michael? Oh, there's a great example of that in the government. I'll leave the agency to be nameless, but let's just say they, they, they have healthcare information on a huge swat of the population. Okay. And, and they, they, they all deserve to be treated honorably for what they've done for this country. But it's they cannot let go the personnel that operate this infrastructure because it, it is coded in uh, on legacy mainframes that Jim and I would remember from probably our younger days, and it is so out of date. They have no way to update it. It's there. They have no multi-factor. They have no anything that can ever be done with it. And now they're they're shrugging and saying, how do we get off of this first? Two, how do we secure it? And, you know, it is a subject of constant attack because of the information that it has. And they're slowly and surely trying to migrate the records out of that system but I'll probably be retired before they do. And so they will not let the people who've been operating that system for 30 years now, they, they keep asking them not to retire because they have no one with the skills to replace them. I mean, I mean it, that's that speaks to, you know, it's a piece of critical infrastructure to this agency and to a lot of Americans, but it, it it's antiquated at the core. And so things, you know, things that can operate at a higher level in the network and bring them security are, are critical to them, right? Because they need to be able to secure that the access 
to and from that, right? You know, what's going, what's requesting information from it and what's it responding to? Um, it, it, it's a, it's something that they just, nobody ever planned for this scenario and here it is, right? Um, and, and you see that less and less, but it's still there in agencies, right? It, it's going to take 20 years to get away from this. Um, and unfortunately, it's, it's a very real thing. Um, and you know, even the earlier ta- you know, statement we were talking about the USGS's mission, right? These sensors they have, they sit on cellular communications. It, you know, it could be in the middle of a body of water. There's absolutely no security on that. It's right. finding the nearest tower it can and broadcasting back to them. And there's nothing that cloaks this. There's nothing that stops a man in the middle. There's nothing that stops you from taking it over and trying to to hop laterally into their network. These are all very real problems of legacy pieces of decisions that will take millions upon millions, probably hundreds of millions of dollars to fix and many years because it's so distributed. And, and so, you know, all that infrastructure is just, you know, it's it's just waiting and needing a better solution. And thankfully, they're starting to ask the right questions. How can they bring newer technologies in on top of these things to fix it? But it's going to take right. time. Right. And I think, Michael, a, a critical element of, of that is that you, you can't wait for the newer technology to address your old problem. You, you've got to figure out a, a technology that exists today that can be applied to not only your new stuff, but also your old stuff. And uh, it, it's an interesting problem to solve. There's, there's options out there. But uh, just because it's, it's the latest and greatest company with the latest and greatest buzz doesn't mean that they're going to be able to solve all the problems for, uh, for your latest and greatest applications as well as your old-fashioned applications that you might still be running. So you gotta look. You gotta look closely at it and figure it out. Let's transition there, and let's actually start talking about zero trust a little bit more. Then, so um, you know, obviously, whether it's private sector, public sector, it doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, we've got executive orders in play. You've got policies getting put forward. Why is zero trust becoming such main stage? You know, regardless of it being critical infrastructure, but just across the industry, what is it? What is it about zero trust specifically, though, for critical infrastructure that sticks out to the two as you as 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 a? It's not a silver bullet. I'm not going to say silver bullet, but a good route to be exploring. Well, let me let me jump in. I think that um, one of the things to think about is that zero trust is not new. It's it's not a new idea. It, it, it might be a new name, a relatively new name, a newish name. Um, but for, I like to tell people, and, and you know, you'll all agree that from the very first time that you password protected an Excel spreadsheet that you sent to somebody because you only wanted them to know how to open it up and look at it, you started thinking about zero trust. I don't trust that somebody in the middle is going to capture this thing and open it themselves and see the maybe the payroll data that it contains or you know, the, the stock option data that it contains. So I'm going to password protect it. And so from the very beginning of time of the internet and of computers and of networking, we've been implementing various forms of zero trust along the way. So that's one interesting thing to think about. As to Michael's point, some of those things still exist. Some of those things are still on the network, right? So you got to figure out how to protect them. But we're also in this age of digital transformation. We're reevaluating whether or not we have uh, whether we need physical data centers or physical infrastructure, a lot of our applications are being moved to the cloud. And so I've got this legacy concept along with this uh, futuristic concept of no longer do I have to buy servers, no longer do I even have to worry about the services uh, that serve up my applications. 
Uh, I just need to worry about the customizations in those apps so that they meet my business. Um, and I think it's becoming more and more obvious to people uh, that are that are worried about cybersecurity that there isn't a firewall that I can buy that gives it gives me zero trust. There isn't a VPN that I can buy that gives it to me. There's not a silver bullet that's going to address all these issues. But I do need something that can take advantage of the best capabilities of some of those elements of of, cap- of products and tie them together and, and leverage information that one might contain so that I could use it for another. And that gets back to what really zero trust means. And, and the idea is that the way that I like to think about it is that nothing is inherently trusted. Uh, just because I'm on a corporate issued device doesn't mean that I should have access to the corporate network. Uh, there might be a different person at that keyboard, right? So we need to evaluate that. Uh, or just because the person at the keyboard has the right credentials, he might not be on a trustworthy device uh, and he might not be in a trustworthy environment. So there's all kinds of interesting things that come into play. And the point here is that different elements of data exist in different systems and different spaces in the corporate environment that need to be included in that zero trust equation. And that's, to Michael's point, that's why this is always going to be a journey. I'm always going to figure out new things to look at, new elements of truth that I might be able to apply to a decision-making process that says, yes, this person, this device, they are trustworthy from this location. Uh, I might grant them access to certain applications, certain destinations in the network because of who they are or what role that they play in the organization. But I still don't trust them enough to expose everything else to the network because that device might be compromised in real time and might not realize that it's compromised, therefore compromising other things. And so, you know, long-winded answer, but, but that's kind of the way I look at it. And, and companies are slowly starting to realize this. If I'm a if I'm a nuclear power plant operator in southern Georgia, and I know that all of my employees live in that general area, then why on earth would I allow somebody to use a valid credential to connect to my power plant when it looks like the traffic is coming coming from a random, completely outside of southern Georgia location, like maybe you know a different country? Why on earth would I allow that to happen? Well, if you don't think about it, you might not even consider it as a possible sign of, of a breach of some sort. So you got to start thinking about it. You'll start adding more and more of these concepts into your equation, but you need a system and a platform that can deal with that. Michael, you got anything to add to that? No, I think I think Jim hit it well, right? I mean, it, it's, perfect. Yeah, there you go. That was a long-winded answer of nothingness. Well, what about like segmentation? And, and and I hope that I have this right when I say it. You know, when I think Colonial Pipeline got when they hit got hit with the ransomware attack, they did say. You know, we've we, we 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 this has been isolated to an IT problem and not necessarily an OT problem. But we're going to take this OT offline real quick because we're just not certain, basically, right? And that that was the level of disruption. So how does the separation of information technology versus operational technology come into play here, specifically for critical infrastructure? Michael, do you want to chime in? Oh God, let's use a commercial. <laughs> There's so many great examples. Let's go back historically into Target, right? Sure. You know, yeah. you know the, the idiot who leaves the password written on a, a, you know, a, a on his on his monitor, right? And get, gets a picture of it, and next thing you know, they're hopping from IT to OT because they were on the same network and they weren't separated, right? So, I mean, I think first things first. Again, you got to start to realize, classify what is IT, what is OT, where are they? What what devices are on there, right? Who, what, where, when, and why have not changed. So you got to figure those out. Whether it, you know what is it, where is it, 
What's it talking to? Why is it talking to it? How is it identifying itself? Is it identifying itself? All of those classifications never go away. So if you're going to go down that ITOT path and separating security, micro segmenting them at the very basic level, oh, absolutely. That, 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 is, that should be table stakes of 100% sure. requirement. But that means you need to understand what those are and, and separate them, right? And never the two should directly, in my opinion anyway, they should not be sitting on the same networks. They should not be directly reachable to each other without an intention for them to do so, right? I mean, if you make it layer two adjacent, you know, that's like saying, you know, he who has himself for a lawyer is a fool, right? You're asking for the trouble because you can turn and pivot layer two from there, right? And you get folks will say, oh, it's in the cloud, you, you know, security groups. Really? Because if your VPC has a, a, a layer, you know, a DMZ block and you stick them in the same block, well, guess what? You, you still created IP adjacency. You, know, you can argue that all the way to the end of the moon, but it's 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 true, right? And so it, it's it's got to start there. Uh, to me, that's the beginning of those conversations. I see the government having them, Jim. I think we see it happening in industry. Um, is it going to happen fast enough? I, I don't know. We're going to find out soon, right? But oftentimes, even though even though that's a, a best practice to follow that separation, um, oftentimes. There's no impetus to separate. Oftentimes, an OT device would feed log records to an IT mm. system, uh, or it would take uh, updates or configuration data from an IT system. And so, whether you separate them uh, or co-mingle them on a network, just to just to summarize everything Michael just said, you still need a way to control exactly what they can do, right? Uh, so, you know, you may have a, an OT device in an operational environment that you can't actually limit access to. It, it might be a shipping dock. It might be, a, you know, an automated crane unloading cargo ships or something. Who knows? But if you can't get that thing, uh, the instructions that it needs to do the job that it needs or the updates to its software or, or retrieve the records from it from the jobs that it's done, uh, that oftentimes will feed back into an IT operational uh, dashboard, if you will. Uh, you got to make sure that you're able to monitor and control exactly what they, those things can do bidirectionally. And that's another critical aspect of this thing. Those, those things could, they could potentially be physically compromised. They could be physically attacked. Uh, people could have access to the internal workings of the systems that are there on board that OT device. You still want to prevent it or be able to prevent it from doing nefarious things across the network. Uh, even if it's, you know, even if it's relatively isolated. So I can see where Colonial Pipeline would go in and say, look, it was an IT system that was compromised, but they are connected in some way. Yeah. We don't think there's a way that they got into the operational side of things, but they are connected in some way. So we better disconnect them and shut it down for a while while we make sure we got this thing under control. Sure. And that's where I'm going to come back to kind of a point you made earlier, right? When, when you look at your technology choices, you need to make sure they're interconnected. The, the interconnections and are well thought through, right? If you have a system that can read and react to other systems, right? Because not any one system is going to complete your zero trust journey. So you're going to have hopefully security tools looking at those IT, those OT, those those IoT systems, and recognizing is it behaving correctly? Is it do is it doing something abnormal? Is it trying to communicate in a way that it should not be? Right? Is it still reporting the same signature? Whatever. When you start to interconnect zero trust with that that journey, 
now zero trust can start to realize, hey, that, you know, to just what might not be able to remove that crane, but all of a sudden the crane is communicating to, you know, not to their to their to their normal operation system. All of a sudden, it's trying to send random information to some other system trying to crash the corporation, right? But if you're if you're interconnecting those and recognizing through your proper tooling integration, hey, now I can start to cut that tool off without having to cut off the entire OT system in that case, right? So yes, micro segmentation, but integration, right? That the, the two play very much together because then you could micro segment that device away from the network and still have the network operational. That makes a lot of sense. They kind of move away from a coarse grain nature of looking at segmentation into very fine grained use case by use case, uh, what makes sense, what makes for the sense for the business? What are you trying to achieve? Why are these systems talking to each other, whether it's OT or IT? doesn't really matter. Keep them segmented and controlled irregardless. So um, I want to be cognizant of time, but I also want to say, what have we left on the table here? Is there anything that the two of you can think of that is, is, is worthwhile for the audience to take away that we've yet to cover? Well, I think that one of the things to think about is that zero trust is, is about more than humans and yep. OT devices. Um, it could be applied to a lot of different uh, aspects of what we do. But at the end of the day, the, the commonality between all of this is data running on systems that are connected to over networks. Um, whether that data is a, is a source of collected information, uh, like a, a, you know, a repository of some sort, or it's data that's individual elements of that data are being used to fuel decisions for into other applications and other other uh, functions in the business. Um, to me, that's that's the thing to start thinking about. Uh, that data may be accessible by humans. It may be accessible by other systems. It may even be accessible by container-based services that are running in your latest and greatest, uh, you know, uh, transformed application. That's that you know it's serverless and it, it meets all the other buzzwords. Uh, but you still need to understand what that thing, that new thing should be allowed to do and control what it can be allowed to do in case there's some level of compromise that you haven't predicted that could happen. Uh, you know, who knows the, the Docker platform itself could become compromised, uh, leading to, uh, the ability to reach into other environments in an uncontrolled kind of way. So you've got to, you've got to really think through some of this stuff and understand it, that the, the common thing among all of it is the network that it runs on. And so if you can if you can take this infrastructure and manage how it interacts with the network and manage what it can interact with on the other side of the network, whether that's pinpoint accuracy into some service running on something or dropping it off onto a VLAN because there's multiple things on that VLAN that need connectivity, micro segmentation, microservices, whatever. It, it all gets back to that network at the end of the day. You've got to be able to control that traffic. I, I, I'm going to start with a little bit of an analogy, I guess, and my takeaway for the audience is, you know, whether you're, you know, Luke Skywalker trying to use a lightsaber for the first time on the Millennium Falcon and there's a blast shield down and you're getting hit with little lasers. Well, guess what? He learned, right? He had to learn how to find what was hitting him and use the force to protect him. Well, zero trust is that same is a journey, right? You, you need to start the journey and you need to understand it's going to hurt a little bit along the way. But that's okay, right? And I've said this before, I'm going to keep saying it. Start with identity, start with identity, start with identity. Who, what, where, when, and why. It's, it defines all things. Those questions never stop. And don't be afraid to understand that journey doesn't end. You do not install it and walk away. 
So ask hard questions, expect failures when you test, do test, and start your journey. I mean, and literally that analogy, right? Do not be afraid, you know, you know, be Luke, pick up the lightsaber, put the blast shield on, try it. It, 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 you'll, you'll find success if you let the force guide you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you said it, you said it throughout this entire podcast. Everybody has vulnerabilities. If you don't know what they are, you want to be the one to find them. Otherwise you're in a bad position there. All right. So, um, let's turn this over and let's have a little bit of fun. You guys have done this before. We'll do it again. We've got three questions that we ask you. Absolutely not cybersecurity related whatsoever. Michael, you're going to like the first one. So let's start with you. Answer it as fast as you possibly can. Imagine you're a professional baseball player. What is your introductory song? Oh, that's a no brainer. Friend of the devil, the grateful dad. (laughs) Absolutely. Hands down every time. What a great song. Jim, what about you? What are are you going to get introduced to? Uh, I'm, I'm going to walk up to, uh, the black keys, gold on the ceiling. Okay. I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm looking up and, uh, and we're going to find the gold. There you go. All right. Next question. Would you rather live a hundred years in the past or a hundred years in the future? Absolutely. The future. I'm a history buff by nature, but I'd want to see what comes out next. What cool toys I could buy or. You know, is there really a flying car by then? Does the Jetsons become real? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with Michael. I think that the past is enticing because we, we know exactly what to expect. But um, it's, the, it's the unknown that's out there. You know, what will it actually be like? It might be disastrous with everything that's going on in the world today. But uh, I think the future is appealing. Now, assuming, though, if you had the knowledge you had today and you were placed a hundred years in the past that could be beneficial because you could then inform the future with lessons learned that sounds like a movie that i've seen yeah (laughs) it sounds like you you know destroyed the the time continuum there that sounds like a bad scene from back (laughs) i think it's butterfly effect all right what is the best thing you have bought so far this year granted it's february 24th so it's limited pickings but oh that's, that's easy for me Game-worn, autographed Miami Dolphins jersey by a future Hall of Famer. Hands down. It's it's not quite showing on my wall yet because it's being framed, but that's all. It's, it's, it's a pride and joy purchase for me being a lifelong Miami Dolphins fan. You know, for me, I, I, uh, I bought a 16-inch brisket knife recently and uh, used it for the first time three days ago, and uh, that thing is amazing. A 16-inch brisket knife. That's pretty big. Just cut it like butter. Watch I might need it. I might need it in the future. Yeah. You never know. No. The zombies are coming, Jim. Zombie keep apocalypse. Your, keep your fingers clear. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to give. I'm going to give a shout out to to our agency, Gregory FCA, because although I didn't purchase this, I am very, very much a proud owner of a brand new microphone setup here. So that that is my purchase of the year. So thank you very much, Gregory FCA. All right. Guys, that's it. Really appreciate you both being on. Thank you very much. And uh, for everyone listening, thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find show notes and other episodes at appgate.com forward slash podcast. And if you're not yet a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is a production of AppGate. The opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the hosts and the guests and are not representative of the views of their organization. I'm your host, George Wilkes, and you've been listening to Zero Trust 30. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Thank you, thank you. Well, that was easy again.